You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is our review of Dark Phoenix. Ladies and gentlemen of NASA, this is Charles Xavier. Help is on the way. We're doing space missions now. Cool. We get the astronauts, we bring them home. Go. The heat signature's rising fast. We gotta get out of here. Where's Jean? Where is she? She should be dead. Did you hear what the kids are calling you? Phoenix. Hello, Jean. Who are you? The better question is, who are you? Something's happening to me. When I lose control, bad things happen. But it feels good. That power destroyed everything it ever came into contact with. Until you. The X-Men fear you. And what they fear, we seek to destroy. She'll kill us all. The girl dies. She's still our friend. She's not Jean anymore. Are you threatening me? That's right. That would be a bad idea. Alright everyone, you were just listening to the trailer for Dark Phoenix, and the story is as follows. This is the story of one of the X-Men's most beloved characters, Jean Grey, as she evolves into the iconic Dark Phoenix. During a life-threatening rescue mission in space, Jean is hit by a cosmic force that transforms her into one of the most powerful mutants of all. Wrestling with this increasingly unstable power, as well as her own personal demons, Jean spirals out of control, tearing the X-Men family apart and threatening to destroy the very fabric of our planet. The film is starring James McAvoy, Michael Fassbender, Jennifer Lawrence, Nicholas Holt, Sophie Turner, Ty Sheridan, Alexandra Shipp, and Jessica Chastain, and is written and directed by Simon Kimberg. Joining me for this podcast review, I have Josh Parham. Hello, hello. And Dan Baer. Good morning, everyone. So, let's start off with the easy question. Josh Parham, <laughs> if you were an X-Men, what would be your superpower? Oh, um... <laughs> That's the easy question. Really? That's the easy one? (laughs) Here's the the obvious answer, as far as I'm concerned. You should all wish to have the power to avoid movies like Dark Phoenix. (laughs) Aww. Aww, man. This this movie, oh, man. I, I don't know about you guys, but I genuinely wanted this movie to succeed. I wanted it to be good so badly even while watching it i found myself coming up with excuses in my brain for everything that i knew was wrong with this movie and we're going to get into that but also too maybe there are some things that we can all maybe agree on that the film does do well uh it might just be getting overlooked due to the mountain of negatives that have befallen upon this movie it's the last film in the fox uh, X-Men franchise, New Mutants, um, you know, withstanding. However, we don't know mm-hmm. when or if that movie's ever coming out. So for all intents and purposes, Dark Phoenix is the end of an era. 
How did the franchise close itself out before being passed over to Disney Marvel? Josh Parm, let's start with you. Well, first of all, I would say that I don't know if I had really any expectation for this movie. I think that the X-Men franchise is one that has been on such an up and down roller coaster that you kind of don't know what you can expect with any of these movies in terms of quality. Well, did you see the uh, Game of Thrones meme that was going around? Every time yeah. an X-Men movie comes out, the gods flip a coin and the fans hold their breath. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, though. <laughs> yeah, it, it, that is very true. And I think the same can be said for Dark Phoenix. And ultimately, I think I walked out this movie not hating it but not really thinking it was a good movie either it was very bland and mediocre which you can almost say is worse than watching an all-out bad movie because there's nothing really about the film that is exceptional to me it's competently made and there's some sequences in it that i think are genuinely kind of you know entertaining to watch on an action movie level but the story and the characters just don't really do anything to draw you in and for like two hours, you're just watching a very mediocre movie and it kind of just limps across the finish line. We should also say that Simon Kenberg, the writer and director, making his directorial debut, by the way, with this movie, he had also had a hand in writing a couple of the X-Men movies, including X-Men The Last Stand, mm -hmm. which in a way, Dark Phoenix is meant to kind of right the wrong of X-Men The Last Stand, which for the original cast and the original trilogy really put a bad taste in people's mouths. You know, you had X-Men and X2, which were both very, very good movies. And then to have The Last Stand come out, that was kind of the beginning of this whole roller coaster that you're talking about there, Josh, in terms of the quality of the X-Men movies. And it just all kind of continued from there. And here we are to this day, we've gotten movies as good as something like Logan, and then we've gotten movies as bad as something like X-Men Origins Wolverine. <laughs> so yeah. there doesn't seem to be much in between for the most part. Uh, but Dan Bayer, I'm curious to know uh, what you thought about Dark Phoenix and also, too, if you felt it was an improvement on X-Men The Last Stand. Oh, it, absolutely an improvement on X-Men The Last Stand. Um, so I here's my... So I am not a big comic book guy. I did not read them a lot as a kid. I did not have all the connections that a lot of people have to the Marvel movies or the DC movies. I just don't care that much. But I'm very connected to the X-Men. Um, partially through comic books, but mostly through the uh, cartoon that was on TV that I watched a lot growing up. And so I've been very connected to the film franchise in terms of wanting them movies to be really, really good. And this one especially, I was like really rooting for all the way um, because like the cast and the rest of this um, sort of, I guess, reboot series or whatever prequel series, however you want to call it, has been pretty good apocalypse notwithstanding um and the dark phoenix saga is one of like the cornerstones of comic book storytelling it's a great story it's you know justifiably famed in certain circles and it was done so poorly in the last stand that just about anything would have been an improvement <laughs> um <laughs> Uh, this registers an improvement, but 
sort of only just barely. It feels like it creates new problems instead, actually. Yeah, I I didn't hate it is basically what it boils down to. But I didn't definitely didn't love it either. I think that as a an adaptation of the story, I think it's pretty good. I mean, they, you know, completely changed basically the whole thing. But as far as like what that goes, it, it's not a bad adaptation, but as a movie, who oh, oh boy. I mean, I appreciated that it was under 2 hours. Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like it wasn't there wasn't a sense of bloat to it. Like it didn't feel like super duper bloated. There were some things that you could cut. Like there are some things that you can cut in just about every movie. Well, actually, I I gotta I gotta just uh, counter that for a second here because don't you feel that the film's rush pacing actually hurt the film's ability to allow us to kind of weigh in on the emotion of the story? Like I felt very emotionally disconnected from a lot of events that were taking place in this movie because I felt that it was extremely rushed at times. I don't think that was the fault of the runtime. <laughs> okay, that's fair. I think, to me, that was more a fault of the actors. I mean, probably, what, 75 to 80% of the movie just rests on Sophie Turner's face to guide you through and it's a very nice face <laughs> okay it, wow it, it is what I'll that say. is some shade man <laughs> <laughs> I, she mostly just like she i don't really think she's able to do much and whether that's the fault of her or the director or you know her and oh god i can't believe that maro fiore shot this movie but like the unbelievable over reliance on close ups is just so bad, and some of the cinematography is just. I was I was shocked to see his name in the credits. Honestly, so for me, I I, I recognize that probably what gives the X Men franchise all of its best attributes is its characters. And the characters are very rich, they're very compelling, and they're all dealing with a very central theme that runs through most of the X-Men movies, and that is this conflict between the humans and the mutants. And one of the smartest things I think that the X-Men franchise has ever done was to draw a social commentary between the mutants and the humans as uh, marginalized communities. And in many ways, that was seen as representation for the gay community. And I, I've always felt that that was like kind of the emotional core uh, that drove a lot of these characters' motivations. And also, that was embodied in this amazing, amazing uh, Martin Luther King Malcolm X relationship between Eric Leshner and uh, Professor Charles Xavier. Here, once again, played by James McAvoy and Michael Fassbender. I feel like all of that is tossed aside this time around to concentrate on a story that is definitely more intimate, more personal, because it does deal with the X-Men having to deal with an internal issue with one of their own. However... Kinberg, I feel like, is in a really, really bad predicament. It's almost a hopeless situation because he has to follow up X-Men Apocalypse. And 
I feel that that movie was just so poorly mishandled. That to me was like you're just extremely generic action movie. Mm-hmm. And Dark Phoenix wants to be more compact. It wants to be almost more of like a drama. The, the, the action sequences in this are literally, in my opinion, nothing really to write home about. Uh, there's not even a single set piece that really truly stands out in my mind as anything that would even come close to, uh, let alone something else I've seen this year versus uh, anything that the series has had to offer before. So they're really relying on the story, the characterization that they've built up from the previous films, which admittedly has been very spotty. And I think that he was just in a really bad position and he did the best that he could. But at the same time, you're handing a debut director $200 million for his first movie. I'm not surprised at all that a film franchise like this that is this large with this many actors, this many moving parts with an inexperienced director, it it, it just doesn't land all the necessary beats it needs to in order to establish an emotional connection with the audience. You know, you were talking a second there, Dan, about uh, some of the performances being a bit wooden, uh, Sophie Turner uh, specifically. And I would argue that there's a lot of people in this movie, like Magneto, for example, played by Fassbender. I feel like he has absolutely nothing to do in this movie. He has no character arc. Mm-mm. And then you have like other characters like Storm or Nightcrawler, Quicksilver, who were there just for window dressing, it feels like. They mm-hmm. absolutely contribute nothing to the story other than for their powers to be used for these uh, action set pieces to look cool. There's no like actual like character arcs or characterization or culmination of anyone's storylines except for the main players. And I just felt this incredible disconnect throughout. So, so here's the thing. And my one big giant issue with the X-Men series as a whole, one of my favorite things about X-Men as a franchise is that there are so many characters that you can um look into and identify with and enjoy for whatever reason you choose to enjoy them right mm-hmm. and there are dozens of characters in the x-men world and the movies have basically decided to focus on like five of them <laughs> Yeah, it, you know, it, you have Wolverine, Jean Grey, Cyclops, Professor X, and Magneto, with a small side helping of Mystique, Beast. That's kind of it. <laughs> yeah, and that, that's really kind of it. I mean, if you want to go back, you know, a little bit of Rogue, but, and I think that that's really been kind of a downfall of the movies because instead of focusing on the like team or family elements you focus on the very small very personal problems of this select group that is definitely like the most oddest thing about this movie is that this is the one x-men movie where i feel like they barely added any characters outside of jessica chastain and a few red shirt mutants that you know, some guy's got dreadlocks that kills people. I don't know. <laughs> Other than that, I, I feel like they had a great opportunity here to focus on those characters, like you're saying. But they, I can't exactly pinpoint what went wrong. I can only lay the blame at Kinberg because he is both the writer and the director of this movie. 
And I also think that that, you know, say what you will about some of the performances maybe being a bit phoned in, like Fassbender or Lawrence. Lawrence. Yeah, (laughs) Jennifer Lawrence with those dead eyes and (laughs) that awful line delivery that she has never been good in the x-men movies but this is a new level of just please get me out of here just give me my paycheck and let me go (laughs) and as a result of which like i said you know I, i i lay that at his feet for directing and for everything else it 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 blows my mind that Chastain was the only added character. And you have all this other previous characterization to build off of from First Class, Days of Future Past, and Apocalypse. And still, they aren't able to necessarily bring these emotional beats home. Instead, I just... I, I don't know about you guys, but like, did you just feel like you were just sitting in the theater just watching and just completely disengaged from everything that was going on? Yeah. I mean, this whole story just kind of feels like it was approached with a sense of apathy to it. Like nothing about these stories or these characters in this film really had anything interesting going on and nothing to really pull you into it. And what I think it's sort of funny is that, you know, the internet likes to make this joke about these movies about how nobody's aging in them, even though (laughs) like this takes place 30 years apart from the first movie. But I think that is actually a symptom of what the filmmakers kind of feel about these films is that they don't really care. They don't care about aging these characters or changing them in any significant way. They're all just sort of stuck in the same spot that they've been in with no attempt to really change them in any significant way. Yeah. It's the, they sort of do not care about the continuity of the movies at at all. Like, to the point where I was trying to figure out in the start of this movie, like, what, where are we? What happened? And where are these characters supposed to be right now? And then I realized, like, oh, well, they clearly don't care. Because James McAvoy is exactly the same age that he was in X-Men First Class, which took place in the 60s. So, the, okay, fine, whatever. This clearly doesn't make any difference. So I was able to... I mean, if you want to if you want to argue to me that in first class, they're meant to be uh, like post college, even then, even it's like 30 years later. And Uh, I I need need to see some gray hair, some wrinkles, something, you know? Yeah. He and Michael Fassbender have aged, what, maybe 10 years (laughs) in that supposed. (laughs) Let's be real. Fassbender never ages. (laughs) Well, I, I have to say, like, I was so glad to see Fassbender on screen again. Like, just his presence is so magnetic that I didn't care that... (laughs) That was a bad pun. (laughs) That it was... (laughs) But um, I didn't even realize I made it. No, I did. I absolutely did. Pun intended. Um, (laughs) I I mean, when he's doing his whole, like, bending metal, uh, manipulating metal thing, and you see his, like... His facial muscles just shaking and everything. Right. I'm like, yo, like, I, I, Fassbender's like really, really like putting a lot of effort into this, and I, 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 I feel bad because it doesn't feel like the movie is reciprocating. Um, each film, that character always seems to go on what is to me the most fascinating journey all the time, because to me, I think he's got the most complex war raging inside of him. And that actually makes him maybe the most fascinating character um, in the series. But in this movie, I just feel like, once again, there was no personal connection. Like, the story just didn't care about him this time around. 
They also introduce him, I think, what, halfway into the movie? Yeah, probably. Something like mm-hmm. that. Instead, I, I, I have to say, you know, I'll, I'll throw a positive out here. I actually think James McAvoy did a pretty decent job this time around, even though the story was a bit wobbly at times. Yeah. His desire for a long-lasting human peace uh, with the humans and, you know, this relationship that he has with the president and how he's getting like all of these honors for leading the X-Men to be heroes for the modern age. They got these toys made now and kids are liking them and things like that. I really felt that's actually the one element of the movie that I really did feel the emotional weight of it all. What I didn't appreciate was how the other X-Men were then turning around and saying, Charles, despite decades of you showing us that you care about us and that you are all about hope and change and peace, uh, you're you're using us and, you know, we're all going to turn on you. And it's like, wait, what? Well, was it characters <laughs> or just Mystique? Because ah. it was mostly <laughs> yeah. Mystique, you know, sowing the seeds of Discord there for her own. And she's always, you know, sort of had the weird relationship with, um, Xavier in that way. Uh, I, I agree. I think James McAvoy is, gives probably easily the best performance in the movie um, to the extent that the film's storyline worked. I think it's mostly because of him. <laughs> I'm also going to throw a bone towards Sophie Turner. I know that some people are very divisive on her. And, and and to be very clear, I've never felt that she was like the greatest actress. I think she does a great job on Game of Thrones playing the character of Sansa Stark. Mm-hmm. Agreed. And I will say to her credit that I liked her here in Dark Phoenix more than I liked her in X-Men Apocalypse. I'm not saying that she's great, but I'm also not saying that she's bad either. Yeah, she she has moments where she's really good, and most of those moments are in her scenes with James McAvoy when they're really yes. going at each other. And I think that there's there's a germ of a really great idea in that story um, that speaks to today about a white cisgender man thinking he knows what's best mm-hmm. for a woman, and having to reckon with the fact that actually he did not. Right, because, I mean, the first opening line of the movie is Jean Grey asking, who are we? Yeah. And by the end of the film, when she has her climactic moment with Jessica Chastain, you know, this is the thing that also kind of really bugged me about this movie a bit, was that the film wants to really be this, like, pro-feminist story involving Jean Grey and, you know... I couldn't help but feel, especially with this, and they leaked the clip of this, so, you know, the the whole, like, ex-woman line and everything like that, I just feel that while the intention, I I, I see the intention, you need to write this better as opposed to saying it so bluntly that it's, hey, look at us, look at us, we're trying to be progressive over here, because that is going to draw people to point a finger then at you, because it doesn't seem like you're doing it because you genuinely want to do it, it feels like you're doing it to get on the good side of you know, people. <laughs> yeah, it feels very yeah. forced and inorganic. And I think that's just very really, corporate. A, yeah, it feels like it's just a very big failing of the storytelling in this film. I think that's really where it comes down to. All of these major complaints that we're having, I think could have been alleviated a little bit had the story just been a little bit stronger. And 
wanted to dive into some of these subjects a little bit deeper instead of just kind of handing it off and saying, yeah, this is what we're doing and on to the next scene. Yeah, I think this film, it really felt like everyone involved was like, we're doing this because we have to. Yeah. Not because we want to, Mm -hmm. which is so strange for this particular movie (laughs) when everyone was like, we did this story so badly before here's our chance to do it. Right. And it's just kind of, well, meh. I also think there was probably a little internal. We don't want Brian Singer to have directed the last X-Men movie. Yeah. (laughs) I, I can't help but feel like that was maybe a part of it. Also, also too, from everything I've read, it does seem like there was a lot of convincing that needed to be done with the cast members to have to return for this movie. Yep. And to his credit, Simon Kinberg apparently was the reason why. Apparently, all the actors have a really good working relationship with him, mm-hmm. and they wanted to come back specifically uh, to work, you know, alongside him if he was directing this movie. Like I said before, I. I I think that the intent was there, and it's not like anybody set out to make a terrible movie. Mm. I don't think that that was the intention here. I I, I definitely think that this was just a classic example of the story probably had too many cooks in the kitchen. Even though Kinberg is the sole credited writer with this, I think that an inexperienced director making this movie with so many other external factors involved with a high-budget movie such as this a huge cast. You're just you're juggling so so much that things are going to get lost in the shuffle. It's, and unfortunately the thing that got most lost in the shuffle was the story and the characters. Now, <laughs> here's the here's the thing that cracks me up is you could have absolutely shitty visual effects and honestly small scale set pieces that, that they don't have to be extravagant and large, but if you nail the story and the characters right, you know, then you've just made a really good-looking indie film as far as I'm concerned, and that's great. So it, it, it astounds me sometimes that the bigger these budgets seem to get a lot of times, it, it, how much story and character tends to fall through the cracks. And and to me, those are the two most single important elements of crafting a good movie. I'm not going to argue with you about any of that. <laughs> did all, did everyone else also find it a little weird too? Um, I have a note written down here. I just want to talk about this for a second, and maybe I'm reading too much into it, but just bear with me for a second. So Jean Grey's power, she's meant to be like portrayed as some sort of a god, and there's like a line in here about uh, what they don't understand. They uh, seek to destroy, mm-hmm. and I was trying to like figure out, and maybe this is just maybe there's nothing to figure out. Maybe it's just bad writing. But this whole idea of, well, we can never understand the power of an omnipotent godlike being. So we're going to seek to destroy anything that we see as a threat to our own human species because we want to be the dominant species on this planet sort of thing. Like, am I reading too much into this or is it just bad writing? No, I think that was exactly what it was. To me, that felt like a very classically X-Men line. (laughs) Right, because the whole movie, I think what Dark Phoenix was trying to be about was I think it was trying to be a movie about control, Mm. about how Charles Xavier tried to control uh, Jean's path and how Jean needs to take ownership of her own destiny. And, you know, she then uh, tries to take control even when she's got Jessica Chastain playing 
or rather maybe this is the other way around. Maybe Groot is playing Jessica Chastain. I'm not exactly sure which way it is. <laughs> but that was very bizarre. I I, I, <laughs> I, I, I have to say, like, talk about marketing mishandling a movie. Like, all the trailers and marketing for this, like, you sort of assumed that Jessica Chastain was playing, like, a an identity disorder like embodiment of whatever this thing is inside Jean Grey. I thought she was just a human. I thought she was going to be like a, um, uh, what's that movie with, um, Avengers, uh, Civil War? Uh, what's it? What's his name? Uh, Daniel Brule plays him in that. Oh, uh, God, I don't remember that character. You know who I'm talking about, but yeah, he was just, yeah. an, he was just a guy. He was just a guy that brought down these godlike beings, and that's what I thought Jessica Chastain was going to be in this. <laughs> so when I find out that she's like an actual alien. Yeah, it's very strange. With no motivations, by the way. I mean, there is motivation, but it's like the most boring motivation you could possibly give your villain. Yeah, and no. she has no character whatsoever. None. <laughs> it was just like such a waste. <laughs> What they do with Jessica Chastain, I think, is actually the most disappointing thing about this yeah. film because, we, I mean, I'm going to guess that we're all fans of Jessica Chastain on the podcast here. Oh, yeah. And oh, yeah. to see her get handed this character that has literally nothing going for them. They are like this empty slate. As you said, Matt, you don't really get any kind of sense of a motivation. They barely hint at the plot behind that they're trying to do, but it's not really explained that well. A lot of that is inferred and it's just so incredibly emptying and boring. And to see Jessica Chastain in this role was so disheartening because she's so good. And this character is terrible. It's so bad. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There, there's nothing going for that character. That character is almost literally nothing. It's the biggest cliche in sci-fi. You know, and you know she's a very talented actress. Yes. We're all fans of her here. She couldn't, she couldn't save this. I, no one could. She no, could no. do. She could play this role in her sleep, and for a lot of the movie, looked like she was doing so. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. Uh, what I want to do now at this point is I do want to pass it off to uh, final thoughts. Great out of ten, Oscar potential for this movie, <laughs> even though it's the worst reviewed installment of the franchise. <laughs> oh my god. All right, Dan, we'll start off with you. Final thoughts, anything that we did not get a chance to talk about in regards to Dark Phoenix? I I think this movie has one of the worst shot and edited action scenes I've ever seen in a comic book movie. Oh, wait, wait, we're just saying comic book movie? <laughs> I Yeah, because I... And, and, and I, I need to know now which scene it is. That would, I don't want to say ever because that would require a lot more <laughs> backup on my part. Sure, sure. But it's probably up there. Um, the the scene on the train is just co almost completely incoherent. And really? Oh, I I didn't feel that way at all. Actually. Oh God, the editing was like there were moments where the editing is just so sloppy and i was like looking at it afterwards and i was shocked that it was lee smith that edited this mm. i i just like oh i i i thought that was so so poorly done for stretches of it not the whole like the whole thing isn't a loss but there were moments of that that were just flat out bad um and i i was 
I, I was shocked again that it was Mauro Fiore who shot it and Lee Smith who edited it. I was it was mind boggling to me. Yeah, I will admit that uh, Mauro Fiore's cinematography is extremely bland in this. I was I was hoping for more iconic imagery and something that would really make me you know t- stand up, take notice, and go wow, you know. Yeah. But those moments never presented themselves. I think that there have been more iconic and better shot sequences in the X-Men franchise than anything in this entire movie. Oh yeah. I mean, there were, there were some, there were some shots near the end when the Phoenix sort of fully unleashes her powers that did have that sort of colorful graphic iconography, um, comic book panel beauty to it, but like Mm -hmm. only almost (laughs) yeah it never quite got there and i think that's what the whole movie is for me like it's an almost but not quite on just about every level and for me i i I guess i didn't so i'm somewhere between a five and a six i'll i'll be generous and give it a six that's really generous my god i was not expecting that well just because like on on a pure level of like I enjoy these movies and I enjoy these characters. I didn't leave feeling tricked or duped or like I'd been had. I just left with this feeling of like, well, that was a movie. I liked it more than I didn't. And that was pretty much it. Okay. (laughs) Fair enough. I don't think it's terrible, but it's not good. (laughs) All right, Josh, what about you? Well, one actually very quick thing I want to mention that did bother me about this film is uh, I was very annoyed that the president wasn't Bill Clinton because the rest of the movies <laughs> had real presidents. And I thought that was a dumb detail that they messed up. And once again, showing how much little care is being granted to the series. Um, easily could have died by Darcy James's hair gray. Yeah. It, I, yeah. That annoyed me. Upset, it would have been really close. <laughs> Yeah, it's a small detail, but the devil is in the details, and that annoyed me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think another thing I would say is we're talking a lot about what doesn't work about the movie, and there is plenty. But I also think that the film does have some nice moments in it. I do actually think some of the action sequences are well done. They're not exceptional by yeah. any means, but for what they're trying to accomplish in a very basic action movie way, I think they get the job done. And... Ultimately, that saves the movie for me from becoming a complete train wreck. But I think also at the end of the day, it just never makes the movie into something special either. It's a well-made film for what it is, and it certainly isn't the worst film in this series, but it doesn't reach the heights, the dramatic heights anyway, of some of the better entries. And for that, I walked out this film just feeling very drained of any kind of enthusiasm i wasn't hating it but i just felt like what i saw was very bland and mediocre so for that i give it a five out of ten like very very down the middle just kind of meh about it what's most incredible about this movie to me is that it's actually for me not the worst film in the franchise even though my low rating for it might might reflect that i Think, though, that it is probably the most disappointed I've ever been in the franchise, Mm. possibly. And a lot of that has to do with, I mean, I was disappointed by The Last Stand. Don't get me wrong. Mm. But I think I was more disappointed with this because this is their second attempt to try and tell this story. 
and you have to believe that they're going to do a better job. And in my opinion, they did do a couple of things better, but there were also other things along the way that they did that, like I was saying before, just created more problems for them and put them into possibly even a deeper hole than what they dug for The Last Stand. It's a shame that this franchise, which I have really enjoyed, actually, despite some of the uh, pitfalls that has fallen in over the years, it's a shame that it's going out on this note. And I think everybody, you know, seeing as how Kevin Feige has handled so many beloved characters in the MCU, everybody is now just patiently holding their breath, anxiously waiting to see what he does with these beloved characters. I think it's going to have to be a bit of time before we do see that happen because, like, for example, Hugh Jackman playing Wolverine is the equivalent of Robert Downey Jr. playing Iron Man. You you need some time to pass before you recast that role. And I kind of feel that way with a lot of these other characters, even though they're maybe not as uh, successful at bringing some of these characters to life. Um, you know, in particular, I'm talking about the young cast here. But for example, like McAvoy and Fassbender, I see them just as much as Charles Xavier and Magneto as Ian McKellen and Patrick Stewart. And once again, I still think that that relationship uh, between the two of them is the heart of these movies, and it always has been. So when we get to the, I, I, I like to call it the, the, uh, the Dark Phoenix Rises ending hmm. uh, at the cafe at the, uh, oh God, I don't want to, all right, now oh, I feel yeah, like I'm getting spoilers. The cafe like, come on. <laughs> but I was like, I was like, yo, <laughs> did Simon Kimberg watch one too many Christopher Nolan movies? Like, what is happening <laughs> here? <laughs> Uh, I thought that was actually kind of amusing, but I was happy that the movie at least ended in that manner, even though I felt like its uh, final minutes were extremely rushed, especially that this is supposed to be, once again, like I said, the closing chapter on this franchise. I really, really felt like this movie could have had a few extra minutes, and I don't mean like a lot of minutes, I'm just saying a few, just a small, like less than 10 to maybe help pad some things out, get us to feel the weight of certain sequences a bit better. And also, too, uh, like I was saying, you know, it, it just probably would have had to have been better directed overall, better written. You know, this is just, this is just, you know, I, I like I said, I, I feel I feel a little bad laying the, the blame so much at Simon Kimberg's feet because, like I said, I think he put himself in a very hopeless situation. But, you know... If you go in with expectations that it's going to be bad, maybe you won't be disappointed. <laughs> so there is <laughs> That's that. That's definitely part of it. <laughs> uh, one positive that I will end this on is I actually thought that Hans Zimmer's score was phenomenal. And I really, really enjoyed it a lot. And I don't think it will be like considered one of his all-time great scores or anything like that. But I actually have been listening to it since I've seen the movie. And I don't need to ever rewatch the movie to listen to that score again. I can easily listen to the score on its own. And I believe that the score went a very long way, like a, like an extremely long way for me for elevating certain scenes in the movie, because I thought that what he was bringing to this was energetic. Um, it was emotional. And it, it, I listen, if you're a, if you're a fan of Hans Zimmer and what he does, 
you're getting you're getting that here. <laughs> so <laughs> I think he's incapable of writing a score that isn't just like Hans Zimmer's greatest hits remixed anymore. Yeah, like. I, I, I see. I see that, you know, and I can understand, too, um, because I've talked to a few people about it. They feel that this score, it's like take three Hans Zimmer movies, yeah. mix them together and you get this score. It's not like he's doing something totally different, like Sherlock Holmes yeah. or anything like that. Well, what's funny, Matt, is that I actually did not know that Hans Zimmer did the score to this film when I was watching it. And as I was listening to the music, my actual thought was, oh, this is some nice music. Although whoever's doing the score is basically like kind of doing interstellar light here. (laughs) (laughs) That came into my mind without even knowing that it was Hans Zimmer. So it, it is nice music, but I think that Zimmer does have a tendency to rely on previous motifs a lot. Um, I think particularly just when he's not working with like Christopher Nolan. So it's good music, but it does feel a little repetitive. That's fair. That's fair. You know, I, I, I like his style a lot, so I'm always okay with hearing variations on that style. So that's totally fair, though. I get it. Uh, with that said, I give this movie a 3 out of 10. Oh. It's not one of the worst movies I've seen this year. That would be my 2 out of 10 rating. But it's one step above, and it is pretty bad. So I I am going to go with a three out of 10 on this one. I was very, very disappointed. I hope that the franchise, uh, you know, continues to do okay with Marvel Disney. And you know what? I like Days of Future Past. I like First Class. I'll continue to rewatch those movies. X-Men Apocalypse, not so much. (laughs) Dark Phoenix, not so much. You want a hot take? Apocalypse is actually my favorite of this new group. So. You know Ooh. what? I'll have to ask you why off air because I'm very curious to hear that. <laughs> yeah, me too. Like I don't hate Apocalypse, but wow. Yeah, yeah. We'll get into that later. <laughs> as far as any Oscar potential for this movie, uh, you know, obviously the one thing I think we'll all point our fingers at here and say that there's a chance is possibly uh, visual effects. Did anyone here think the visual effects were outwardly awful in this? No. No, they're not bad, but I wouldn't say that they're anything that's, like, very exceptional either. Like, yeah. I wouldn't be shocked if this movie makes, like, the the 20 film shortlist for the Bake Off, but I would imagine a, a hard time. I, I don't think I would ever see a world in which this makes the 10. I, I totally agree with that. I, I actually think that the most impressive sequence maybe of the whole movie in terms of the visual effects might actually be the opening car crash. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. You know, we've seen a sequence like that before. We've seen sequences like the train. We've seen a lot of these sequences play out in other X-Men movies before, like, you know, Kurt uh, teleporting as uh, Nightcrawler. They, they, they do like a different kind of effect with him, I felt like this time. Uh, that was kind of interesting. But you know, Quicksilver doing his thing, who, by the way, also underutilized in this movie well, once again. Get rid of him real quick. Mm, yeah. Yeah. For reasons that I, I whatever. I, ugh, I don't know. This movie's so frustrating. <laughs> Maybe Evan Peters had like three other Ryan Murphy projects to film that week. <laughs> <laughs> so either way, I, I think that, Josh, I think that that's where the conversation starts. I think that's where it ends. Visual effects shortlist maybe makes the 20. If it doesn't make the 20, sayonara. If it does make the 20, sayonara, because I don't think it'll go any further than that anyway. Yeah. So that'll pretty much do it here for 
our review of Dark Phoenix here on the Next Best Picture podcast. Dan Baer, tell everyone where they can find you on the internet. Yes, you can find me on Twitter at DancingDanOnFilm. Josh Parm. You can find me on Twitter at J.R. Parham. And you can find me at Next Best Picture. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to our review of Dark Phoenix here on the Next Best Picture podcast. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Player FM, Acast, CastBox, and also on Spotify. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, write us a comment, rate us five stars, let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate any level of feedback that you can offer. It helps people to discover our show. So if you like the show and you want more people to listen to us, write us a comment on iTunes. Then, if you're feeling generous, head on over to Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you can get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening, as always, and we shall see you all next time.